I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. You're a clinical psychologist. That's true. You know how many times a week people phone me or text me wanting to know how they can get in to see Dr. Matt? No. I, I'm 100% serious. Really? Uh, I think right now uh, the world is in dire need of more therapists. Uh, it really yeah. is. You said it two years ago when we were beginning COVID that the next pandemic or epidemic was going to be mental health. And I think we're starting to see that come true. Yeah, and I wasn't the only one. Lot that's actually been a national news topic is the shortage of mental health providers of various you know sorts. I'm a psychologist, but you know there's psychiatry and there's psychology and there's nursing and there's social work, and all of us are are in high demand. I think uh, COVID sort of brought out a lot of issues, whether it was substance abuse or just regular mental health issues and things like that. Now, normally during the first 10 minutes of the podcast, we talk, we kind of check in on my recovery and what's going on. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, I'm kind of just ho-hum right now. Uh, I mean, I've, I've Well, got, you have that new addiction. Uh, yeah. What, what's the new addiction? The one that uh, your girlfriend's trying to manage for you. Uh, my hats? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Josh and I were giving him a hard time off air because uh-huh. every week for like the last couple months, it's a new golf related hat yeah and this one's called sweet rolls and uh, they make amazing hats. they make really cool stuff uh and, yeah, yeah. and so so much in the fact that in my new tv job that i got yeah uh i'm wearing hats all the time we just got done doing photo shoots and they were like you're wearing a hat and i was like yeah that's kind of my deal yeah and you uh, need to get sponsored for yeah, all these hats you're I, I'm, a, I'm a hat guy and yeah. so i wear hats now and my girlfriend wants to institute this new hat rule <laughs> which i'm not a big fan of just the word rule i don't think I know, either one I, of that, us that are really, a big really fan of the word off, rule but for every new hat I bring into the yeah. house, I've got to relinquish an old hat. I, no, I, I just, I don't know. I and don't think so. Right now, I bet I got over 70 hats. Wow. And they're all up above our closets. And, and, and I've kind of taken over the whole top shelf of the closet. And oh. she's bought in dividers, and so they're in different <laughs> colors. And <they're, laughs> I'm not kidding. So, wow. Yeah. So, like, if I want a white hat, I have to bring down the thing that's got all the white hats. This one's got all the different colors. This one's for working out. This one's for painting. I mean, it's. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe she has a point. Yeah. I don't know. And she, and she usually does. Yeah. But I'm just kind of ho hum because uh, life's not awesome i mean it isn't in some regards yeah uh and it's not terrible it is in some regards but i'm just kind of in the middle you kind of feel like you're in a rut not a rut uh just kind of cruising just cruising and kind of stagnant uh in my recovery certain things that are going on in my life would have usually been what i thought being helped with alcohol, but I don't have that. I don't have that escape. So I'm having to actually sit through and work through certain things that are going on in my life. And this is with family matters and, you know, everything that comes into it, just normal life. And that's, isn't that interesting that you bring that up? Cause that is the, the allure and the lie of, of, of using substances to self-medicate. It's like, oh, I've got all this stressful stuff going on. I'm going to go drink or I'm going to go smoke. I'm going to, you know, but then it makes things worse. But when you don't have it, then you have to deal with it. But I mean, that's the only way things get better. Like looking back in hindsight with four years of sobriety under my belt, uh, I should have probably known this, but I used to get drunk to pay bills. Uh, to deal with the stress of paying the bill. Just, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's and I was like, are you kidding me? Because it was like, I don't want to sit down here and write all these checks and all these things. It's just depressing. It doesn't make me feel good. So I'm going to get drunk. So it would, to pay bills was a six pack day. Yeah. I was like, I, and like in my head, I would go to the liquor store or the beer store and go, I'm getting six beers because I've got to pay bills today. And you feel like you need it in order to pay the bills. Yes. Yeah. And mowing the lawn was a four beer buzz. I was like, I don't want to mow the lawn, but I, I guess I'll drink four beers and it'll be okay. Yeah. And so there's certain things in my life 
life now that I do, that I do sober, that I used to use alcohol to get me through those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'm getting through them, and, and it's fine. But like in hindsight, I was like, I probably should have known I had a problem. I had to get drunk to pay bills. <laughs> but I used to make it as a joke, yeah. and, you know what I mean, and be like, well, yeah, okay. Well, you know, part of it is some one of the things we talk about in therapy a lot is acceptance, like therapeutic acceptance is there are a lot of aspects of life that are just kind of ho-hum, sucky. boring, or, or flat-out sucky, yeah. And actually by just accepting, you know what? I don't want to mow the lawn, but you know what? I want to have a mowed lawn, so you know I'll go do. You know those kinds of things help us, but when we stay in conflict with them, when we can't accept them, that's when we often turn to substances. Like when you're like, well, I I, I emotionally don't want to have to deal with mowing lawn. I can't emotionally accept doing it, so I'm going to go get my four beers. Then I can do it. Yeah, but you know, but then it's, it goes back to what I've really learned in my recovery is perspective. Yeah, because four years ago, those same bills were there, and I didn't have the money to pay them all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I've got money and I can pay them, so I am now grateful that I have jobs and I have opportunities that give me money that I'm able to pay these bills myself. Yeah. I don't have to rely upon family. I don't have to borrow money. I don't have to wait and go. I don't have to play that mental chess game that goes, well, this bill's not a different color, so they're not that serious. <laughs> oh, if yeah. they come in yellow and pink, those are the ones you pay. That's when you know it's Cause, serious. Because that yeah. means the next one, they're cutting it off. Right. And so I don't have to play that mental chess. I am now fortunate enough to where I can pay my bills. Mm-hmm. And so I'm grateful for that. So, so it does, life has gotten better. Yeah. So it's perspective. Yeah. But I still, like I was talking with our guest and we're going to introduce you to him in just a second. His name is Scott. A um, lot of people in recovery think the ultimate goal is to get sober. And and, and okay. In, in a way it is, it is. Sort of. Yeah. But you're getting sober just to get even with everybody else who's doing life sober. And so we've added more on our to-do list than we should have, but now we're here. So now we're getting sober, which is important because if we don't get sober, we can't do all these other things, right. but we still have to do all these other things. You still have to get a job. You still have to deal with your family. You still have to do with your ex. You still have to do with all these things that you have to do. You just, and that's why I think the ultimate goal is not just sobriety. The ultimate goal is recovery is recovery and recovery implies that you're thriving in life. You know, you're doing more and doing better than you did before. Uh, but if you're yeah, – sobriety is a good goal initially, I think, but then it frees you up to live a, a life of recovery, which is cool. But eventually you have to get back in the game. Yeah. I've said it before on the podcast a dozen times. I got sober to live. I didn't get sober to hide. And I think there's a lot of people out there that are sober, but they're hiding. And, oh, yeah. And, yeah. and, and I'm not going to tell them that that's not their recovery because that's not my Everybody's job. Everybody's got their own path. But if, if you find yourself in that position and you're listening to this, you might ask yourself, okay, what's it going to take to take it to the next level? Do I need some help? Do I need some support? Do I need to visit with a therapist? Do I need to open up and you know, take some chances uh, at a better level of life. Like you can, what do we say when we were kids playing Nintendo? You got to level up, right? And that's what they say now. You got to level up. Yeah. And so that's my ultimate goal is to continually level up. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at. But I noticed that you brought a piece of paper. Did my homework. You've got some highlighted areas. Well, I'm often, uh, you know, throughout the week doing the different things I do. I'm often thinking now about recovery and substance abuse, and I'm noticing the research, and I'm noticing things. In fact, uh, I left my downtown clinic this morning, saw some people this morning, uh, jumped in the in the car. As I was leaving the clinic, there was a pickup truck there in the parking lot, and it's a building that has lots of other people that work in it, not just mental health folks. But uh, So I don't know who this pickup truck belonged to, but I noticed right on the bumper, mm-hmm. it said, I have naloxone in case of overdose. And I thought, you know what, that's awesome. That is somebody. Somebody is that dedicated to being helpful to others that they're going to pack it around with them and they're going to put the bumper sticker on their truck. I thought that was pretty cool. And for those who don't know, naloxone is a life-saving drug that will help people if they're in heroin or opioid overdose. Yep. I mean, it, it, it's it's one of those shots that has saved countless lives. And right. if you have somebody in your family that's addicted to opioids or heroin, uh, it, it benefit you and them to have yeah. that on standby. Well, actually, it made me think I should have that in my car. I don't, I don't knowingly have anybody close to me that's struggling with that right now but you know what there are people close to me 
because I work in public. Like there's and downtown be, and downtown. There's there are going to be people around. So I I may look into doing that. I and maybe I'll I'll let us know how to do that. Like if you want to be somebody. Where do you go to get in the lock zone? I don't really know. Well, I'm going to throw Josh under the bus right now. When yeah. he posts this, he's going to put up a link on there of where you can get it in the community. Good job, Josh, in advance. Yeah, we we got the rock on for yep. Josh. Yeah. So what's but I, have, your- I have a couple things here. So so just real quick, I want you to know that there's real research out there, everybody. There's real research to, being done by people that are not biased or trying trying to be as as impartial as possible and share not some things with stuff us. Or, or- so a couple of thoughts, real quick. Yeah, not selling anything. One is the the title of this, and this is from the New England Journal of Medicine, so a very reputable source. Alcohol warning labels need updates to reflect harms. And so basically what this research article is saying is that uh, we haven't updated the warning labels. I didn't realize this in over 30 years. Probably right now all it says is if you're pregnant, do not drink. That's exactly what they say. And then they, they say that that was, you know, 30 years ago, that was a big push to get people to understand that. So that made sense. Because of alcohol fetal syndrome. And yes. I mean, that was that was the big push. I mean, that's I mean, I know that because I'm alcoholic and I've studied the bottle because <laughs> I, I'm just that guy. You've, you've read the bottle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the only other thing that they typically say is may cause health problems. And what they're saying now when they do when they talk to people about what is the what does the warning label mean to you when they do research you know and talk to people most people hone in on the pregnancy thing and they're like that's important yeah yeah what is this other part may cause health problems what they're finding is it's actually pretty ambiguous and and because it doesn't mean anything specific it doesn't mean anything specific so most people overlook it and so it can actually be misleading where they're like well health problems whatever you know it doesn't mean anything so just like we were very... The bottle says health <laughs> problems, but the TV commercial says I'll get hot girls on the volleyball court. Exactly. And so there, there's a push to, to update that. I thought that was actually pretty cool. And then back to one more, because I, I know we don't want to spend forever on my nerdy interest, but cannabis industry cribs big tobacco's social responsibility initiatives. Ooh, and that that's from wordy. the Journal of American Medical Association. What does so, that mean? So what that means when you crib something, it's like you're taking notes. And so what they're finding is that the cannabis industry is taking notes from what the tobacco industry did 50 years ago. And what they're doing is they are um, engaging in social responsibility activities, which sounds good. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the authors here says that can have some good things, but they're providing things like scholarships and, and internships, but basically in an effort to look like they're doing all these socially responsible things so that we'll overlook the negative side effects and health problems that are caused by the product that they're selling. And that's exactly, they've actually found that um, the 10 major cannabis producers in the United States and Canada have directly used the old playbook, if you want to think of it that way, from the tobacco industry so that we'll overlook any of the negative things that are coming out, including the number one is sponsoring research. Really? Yes. And so what you need to understand as a reader is that if you're reading a research article and they don't disclose um, conflicts of interest in at the end of the article then they're misleading you on purpose. And so just like tobacco industry for many, many years was sort of sort of covertly sponsoring tobacco research. Uh, it was a diet aid or whatever. Anything. They, they would kind of bury and mislead the, the results. The cannabis industry is doing the same thing right now. And so they're really literally following the playbook that we all now know was bogus. Mm-hmm. Like we've, you know, there's been so many lawsuits and things in the tobacco industry and we know how bogus uh, their propaganda you know was and and to some degree still is but they can't get away with it as well anymore but nobody's monitoring the cannabis industry and they're doing the exact same thing so i just wanted to let you know that a if you're reading research try to find real sources and just i know you love the the social media yeah but a good social media post will have a link to the actual article and so if it's interesting to you link in and read it from the journal of american medical association or new england school or journal of medicine those sorts of places that are doing real research and then at the end including the article i just said to you it said it, you have to disclose if you have conflicts of interest. All right. And it said these researchers have no conflicts of interest to disclose with the cannabis industry, meaning they're not getting paid in any way 
by by those folks. I love it. But isn't that? I mean. Dang it, it, man. Like, you've got to, you've got to be on your toes because you don't know if what you just read said, oh, cannabis is really good for you. Did you read to the bottom to find out if the people doing research were getting paid by the cannabis people? Because they might be. When we were kids, one of the coolest guys in the world was the Marlboro Man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that, yeah. guy, that guy was, he was ultimate, like John Wayne, right? Yeah, he was yeah. cool. The Marble Man. And then even Camel Cigarettes had Joe Camel. It was a cartoon camel smoking cigarettes. Yeah. And you're like, that guy's a camel. That's promoting, like, when we grew up, Westerns. You know, TV shows and movies, the Western, the Cowboy, oh, yeah. that was that was manly, right? Oh, yeah. And so, of course, what did they? who did they choose as their spokesperson, but basically a John Wayne lookalike? The Marble Man. Yeah. Hey, we uh, thank you, Dr. Matt. I always love it when you bring information because you're, sure. you give us credibility. <laughs> you are well, our credibility. I appreciate that. And I just want people to know I'm thinking about it all the time. And so when I find something interesting, I like to bring it in. I love it. And when I find something interesting, I like to bring it in. Our guest today is Scott Schwartz. He's the road drummer. And you didn't know you've seen him perform before you met him today, but you have. I have. In fact, when we started talking, uh, today's my first day meeting you technically. But everybody knows that I, I love Real Salt Lake. We go to all the games. And I realize, yeah, I've seen you sitting out in front of the stadium drumming. He's a street performer. He's been sober for six years. Scott, how are you? I'm doing good. How about you, Casey? Uh, you know, better than I deserve is my standard answer. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm excited for you to stop by and share your story. We're going to hear that in just a few seconds. You're listening to Project Recovery. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley, our guest today. Scott Schwartz, how you doing? Doing awesome, man. Uh, People might know you as the road drummer. What does that mean? Um, It means that I drum on the side of the road. (laughs) That's your profession. (laughs) That is my profession, yeah. You're a street performer. I am a street performer. I perform on buckets and pots and pans um, on roadsides and outside of venues and stuff like that. So Now, uh, before we find out how that all came to be, uh, where does the story of Scott begin? Um, I was born in Lancaster, California. Uh, left Lancaster when I was eight. Don't remember a whole lot about it. Um, Pretty and, good childhood, you think, up to then? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, my, I come from a family of five, I guess, or six of us all together. Uh, the last one was born much later, so I didn't get to spend a lot of time growing up with her. Uh, but I grew up with the five of us like as a tight unit. And just to point, uh, paint the picture for people at home, um, you're sitting down, but standing up, you are 6'9". Yes. So the that photo is. that we take afterwards is going to be really great for <laughs> yeah. Casey and I tower uh, under six feet. Yeah. So being 6'9", you had to play a lot of basketball. Oh, no, I, I never played basketball. I did when I was, like, in third grade, but I never did it, like, in high school or anything like that. Um, uh, how come? Because um, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I like it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> well, you know, sports are very competitive, and I understand there's a, a great value in developing, like, a team mentality and working with a coach and growing in that type of fashion. But I just... I'm just not competitive. Well, it's not at everybody's all. personality. Yeah. I right? like I like making art and expressing myself and working with other artists and just that type of collaboration yeah. versus yeah. like a collaboration against another group of people. You know, yeah. so sure. I understand the value of sports. I'm just I'm just not I'm not a fighter. You're an artist. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. an artist. You're yeah, an artist. Yeah. I'm yeah, one yeah. of those. I'm but one of those did wimps. that mess with your identity as a kid? Because a lot of people probably just saw you and was like, "You have to play basketball," and you don't. Did that mess with your identity at all, or were you pretty confident in who you were and what you loved? Oh no, I was a teenager. I didn't know anything about who I was. <laughs> so, and there were all sorts of 
things that were pulling me in different directions, trying to make me become what I was, what they wanted me to be. I was raised LDS, for example, and like that was pulling me to try to be that type of guy. And I had, um, you know, just as the eldest child too, I had a bunch of things pulling me, trying to make me something that I'm not. So there were all sorts of things that were trying to convince me to be, you know, whether it be so a basketball where, player or where did art fit in growing up? Um, being an artist, music, art, did those, were those things encouraged at all? Oh yeah, certainly. My mom, um, was very encouraging of us growing up with art. She would have art days and she would, uh, we had like a gallery when I was a boy scout too. Like we made a bunch of paintings and set up a gallery Mm -hmm. and stuff. So my, my mother in particular was very, very supportive of all the arts. And, uh, my dad is too. Um, He's not an artist per se himself, though. He's definitely got much more of a, a, a analytical, analytical, uh, utilitarian mind. Like, what purpose does this serve? But he also still he still tremendously values the arts and stuff like that. And he paid for my piano lessons and for my sister's piano lessons and all of their art stuff. So he definitely supports it too. Um, mm. So I felt very fortunate to come from that type okay. of. I have a great family. So you didn't have like sometimes. Um, so I've spoken to, in the course of my twenty years being a psychologist, I've spoken with a lot of really tall guys in <laughs> therapy who f- felt like if they weren't uh, inclined to sports like like basketball, mm-hmm. that they that created conflict sometimes with their dad mm-hmm. or with friends. And it sounds like your parents were more just kind of open and supportive of the things that, that you, that you were inclined towards like the arts. Yeah, there was, there was definitely pressure from them to focus on, you know, doing really well in school so that I can go, you know, get a scholarship for college, et cetera, and stuff like that. So they Mm -hmm. definitely pressured me in a variety of ways, but no, they were still supportive of the arts for sure. Well, that's good. At what age did alcohol enter into your life? Um, it was after I left the house. So, uh, so a pretty, pretty normal childhood, high school experience and all that. Pretty normal. Yeah. I, I, I left my family though in like a, a, a bit of a tornado. I was, I was pretty upset. You know, I, I primarily pr- blame testosterone because I'm a new, you know, I'm, everyone's upset at their parents at some point, but I was also like very just frustrated with, uh, um, a variety of components of the way I was raised. We'll say that. And I won't go into the details of it, but like um, when I left the family, I was in a, a really stressful space of mind. So with it, I, I realize you may not want to talk about some of the details and that's totally fine. Um, however, uh, this, you know, we have a, a, an audience here in Utah that's oh, pretty familiar yeah. with the LDS church, of yeah, course. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of great things about a very structured religious upbringing, but part of it can be, you know, there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. And when you're an adolescent, uh, your mindset is a little bit more natural about uh, being open. Like, well, maybe I want to do things a little differently. Maybe I mm-hmm. want to explore things my own way or have questions and, and go in a direction that can make parents, uh, nervous because you're you're not necessarily adhering to exactly the the standards that they're teaching, and so I, I don't know if that's kind of what you're alluding to. But sometimes a person feels like it's con- too constraining when you're 17 and 18, and you're like, ah, I want to do things my way. Certainly, I, I definitely um, do not like to be controlled, and that still has lasted throughout all of my in, into my adult it, years. It's, it's kind per- of embarrassing, it, honestly, because <laughs> sometimes I'm told to do something, just. No, I mean, it's like, well, you're 38 now. You should probably do what you're told if they have the appropriate authority. Casey, you and I don't ever feel that way, yeah, do yeah. we? <laughs> you're, you're saying that, and I'm still, it's just like, that's the thing that made me such a great alcoholic. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. You can't tell me what to do. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. my body. I can yeah. do what I want. Who are you? I don't tell you what to do. You don't tell me what to do, and we won't have a problem. Exactly. And when I hit 18, finally I had legal autonomy. And so, like, I got out of the house as quickly as I could and engaged in autonomy for the first time i felt like i felt like i could make my own decisions i thought i could make my own choices i could hang out with who i wanted to and i felt free and i actually didn't get into alcohol immediately as soon as i got out um i did move in and live with a bunch of people who drank but the the residue i guess of uh being um lds maintained i felt actually kind of cool 
that I wasn't drinking and everyone else was drinking. You were a little different like than Yeah, yeah, it was norm, different yeah. and stuff like that. But I could still hang with you and I don't need to do yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that gave me, that made me, because I was different from everybody else, that made me feel cooler, especially at 18. You know, like, oh, yeah. every, what is cool or what is cool with you is uncool to me. And I was uncool before it was cool to be uncool. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> I think you just summed up every teenager's mindset right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, after, uh, you know, being alcohol free and living on my own for a couple of years, I finally did give into it. And it was actually marijuana that I did first. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't addicted in the beginning. It wasn't, it was, it was a social type thing. I was living with a bunch of, uh, when I left the house, you know, um, I wanted to be a musician since I was a little kid. I loved Michael Jackson and would, you know, and like, that was what I always imagined myself being. And when I finally got out of the house, and got away from this idea of like, oh, I need to get like a, a salary job someplace as an electronic engineer. Yeah. Um, and I could pursue my dreams. I was like, okay, I could pursue my dreams. I'm going to be a musician. So I was living with guys who were um, into punk rock music, heavy metal and stuff like that. And they were getting wasted all the time too. But I wasn't with them. But sure enough, after, like I said, two years – if I finally smoked weed off of a bet, there's literally a video of me um, where everyone's <laughs> chanting my name, Scott, Scott, as I'm trying to take a hit off of a bong. Your first one. Yeah, yeah huh? my first time. And I didn't pull it off. But like, uh, yeah, that was the beginning. And like I would drink occasionally for a couple of years uh, while I was doing the music thing. So I started like a, a, a record label. I set up a, a recording studio inside my garage and I had bands coming through there. And again, I would drink every once in a while, but it was not. It was not your energy level that you have in this room right now does not surprise me that the first thing he did was set up his own record. (laughs) I mean, he's going, he's all in, you're all in, right? I realized, because what I really wanted to do was like to be a singer, you know? Yeah. Um, But I kind of realized as I was going through the music uh, scene that uh, all bands break up, all of them. Yeah. All bands fail. Mm-hmm. except like the 0.1100%. So I realized that in order for me to be successful in this industry, I need to give up on this dream of being a lead singer in a band. I need to just get behind the mixing board. And um, that's going to provide me. And then I'll be able to work with lots of bands. I'll be able to, you know, I could rely. It was just seemed like a safer bet, you know. Um, but it's still the music industry. So the record label failed. Um, I had a couple of bands leave and there was just a whole bunch of things. Was that here in Salt Lake? No, that was actually out in uh, Eugene, Oregon. Okay. So I left when I left my parents' place. I moved up to Eugene, Oregon, with the bands. Um, that failed, and I moved back in with my parents for a year, and that's when the alcoholism actually began. Um, this might be the first time they hear this, but uh, <laughs> um, I got a job at Albertsons, and I went back to school. I was like, okay, music's not going to work. I'm going to just give up on my dreams. And, uh, yeah. And the alcoholism kicked in. That was the first time I drank alone. I'll never forget the first time I drank alone. It was at Albertsons. I was working at the gas station. I'd walk behind the Albertsons and there was a really traumatic event that happened that day related to the record label finally failing. And I bought a 40 inside of Albertsons, went behind it and pounded it. And then went back and worked at the gas station. It was the first time I, I drank alone. And that mm. was when it began. Because then after that, it wasn't about drinking with other people. It was about like getting wasted before I saw other people or getting wasted before I went other places. And it was just like it was that was when it, it was alone. Well, you like, said a was, key thing, which is pretty heavy. You said, I decided to give up on my dream of being a musician. Yeah. Yeah. And that give up. People don't really realize that's a if you mean it. Oh, that, I did. That's, I meant a, it. that's a heavy, yeah. heavy burden. When you realize you're giving up on something important, especially something that you had as a little kid, I still remember like dancing to Michael Jackson's music and like looking at my shadow and thinking I was really cool as my shadow was dancing yeah. along the wall and like just like that core memory from like six or seven yeah. or whatever it was. Like that was like it's one of my earliest memories was trying to like and so that was making that, music. So that was music. part of you. Yes, and we talked a lot on this show um, about identity development and people develop, you know, through our childhood, especially older childhood and adolescence, we're developing a sense of who we are. Uh, Casey, uh, I would say, w- was a class 
clown and comedian yep. way back <laughs> when, right? And and th- those sorts of things, the way we think about ourselves become part of who we are. Giving up on that is giving up on part of yourself. Yeah. So much the fact that you remember the day you first drank alone. You said it's burned into your brain and it's a vivid image. Oh, yeah. I remember looking at the traffic. I remember certain cars going by, actually. Like there was a red sedan that went by twice. And I remember thinking, like, do they know I'm doing this? You know, (laughs) (laughs) we're going to find out more about that. You're listening to Project Recovery. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today, Scott Schwartz. He's the road drummer. Uh, and you've been telling us a story about the first time you said that you believed alcoholism really began. Yeah. Uh, you've given up on your dreams, mm-hmm. uh, your power in a 40 behind a grocery store. Yep. Uh, you remember in a red car going past you a couple of times, wondering if they know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's yeah. a vivid That's a Yeah, vivid that's very, memory. very vivid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so at that point, you said you started drinking alone before you went out and met people because it wasn't like a social thing. It was a, almost a, a motivator to go out and do things. Is that right? It was a motivator to go out and do things. And it was also – it was really just a coping mechanism. There was always an excuse to drink. There was, you know, someone's coming over or I need to do work. You were talking earlier about like, you know – Getting drunk, to getting pay drunk the bills. before you pay the bills or doing the – Drunk to mow the lawn. Right. I mowed the lawn drunk so many times. And again, it was a way to make it like fun. It's like, oh, I don't want to mow. Oh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll have four, five, yeah. you know, <laughs> and then I would be out there mowing the lawn and finally getting the chores done. But yeah, it was once I started drinking alone, there was no excuse that was unavailable to me. I could make plenty of excuses inside my brain, especially because it was all inside my brain. I never, you know, tried to justify my drinking to anybody else. If I'm just the only one sitting in there talking to myself and saying like, oh, this is a good reason to drink. Oh, this is a good reason to drink. There's no other voice inside my head that's saying like, this is probably not a good idea. Yeah, it's probably not a good idea. You shouldn't be doing this. Or like, why are you, what what a waste of time or waste of money, et cetera, et cetera. There was no counter argument. (laughs) There was no counter argument for a Uh, very, very long time. Preaching to the choir. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, uh, do you ever get married? Are you, I mean, where, where are you at in your life now? So um, after the alcoholism began in Medford, Oregon, I moved up to Portland, Oregon, um, where it got significantly worse. I moved in with a a couple of guys who were also drinkers. um, And uh, yeah, and I I was, I guess what they call a functioning alcoholic. I held down a job. I paid my rent. I would go home and get trashed every single night. Um, And uh Eventually, I started moving around. I was moving around from job to job, not because I was losing jobs to my alcoholism. It was because the jobs would get in the way of my alcoholism. I didn't realize this until speaking to a friend just a few nights ago, actually, about it, that we would try to find jobs that would allow us to get trashed every single night and then, you know, be able to wake up. Still and be able to yeah, go yeah. to work. Yeah, yeah. And what's crazy is now that I'm sober or not now that I'm sober, but once I got sober, I started getting much better jobs because I wasn't <laughs> looking for things that would just allow me to like, you know, phone not, it in, phone it in. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I got a girlfriend. Um, we were together for about five years. Um, and, uh, was she a drinker? No. And what's, what's, Ironic is actually I've never dated a woman who drank or smoked or did drugs. During my time as as an addict, I was always attracted to to women who were um, sober. Sober, yeah. Why do you and think- shockingly they dated me? I don't know why. What it was probably the bad boy complex. Well, you know? you're tall, handsome, and a drummer. So come on, I mean, give me a break. <laughs> well, you're taking all the drummer, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What? Well, but but uh, why do you think you were attracted? I mean, that's an interesting thing because you just got done saying. Uh, I never, you know, uh, you weren't just, you didn't have to justify your drinking to anyone. So it would kind of make sense to date somebody else who was drinking. Yeah. You yeah. wouldn't have, but this, now you're dating women who don't drink. It sounds to me sort of counterintuitive. Why, why do you think you were attracted to them? Um, well, in therapy, uh, I've realized, I realized that I'm attracted to unhealthy women. Now, just because they weren't drinking doesn't mean that they were healthy, mentally Definitely, healthy. Definitely, yeah. that's true, yeah. Um, so there were uh, – I can't – I don't want to go into too much detail because sure. it might reveal who they are or anything like that. But they definitely struggled, you know, with so their they own had, things they had and other stuff things. like that. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, but they were amazing women, all of them. They were right to leave me. They deserved so much better. Um, 
And I hope that wherever they are, they are. How do you feel like your drinking affected your relationships with women? I lied. Because I wasn't, how do I put this? I lied about my drinking all the time, particularly to the last one, um, because I acknowledged that I had a drinking problem to her while we were dating before it had actually really, you know, solidified into a relationship. Um, so she knew about it, but then I would just lie to her about whether I had drank that night or not, or like where I had gone or any of that. How much I, I lied so much to that poor girl, not about our relationship. I never cheated on her or anything like that, but specifically with drinking all the time, all the time. And I, I still feel guilt to it about that. To this day, but that's the that pattern, that right? Much. Like lying about substance abuse, yeah, yeah. and addiction it protects it. It allows you yeah. to keep doing it, or at least you think it does, right? Yeah, yeah. You well, know, and you think that they don't know, but she knew. Yeah, we were in a codependent relationship, so she tolerated my behavior, and, and maybe you know, that's, and that's why dating the unhealthy women was attractive because if you could have that codependence. You know, they would tolerate. They would bullshit. tolerate your oh, bad yeah. behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let yeah. me ask you this: As you were lying to them, were you also lying to yourself? Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, the depravity of the lies that I would tell. <laughs> I'm with you. I know. You know, it's and what I didn't realize until a therapist pointed this out to me is I would actually spend quite a bit of time thinking about them. Like before, I would tell a lie, or I was heading to a destination where people were like asking what. I had been up to or what I had done or anything like that on my way there, I would be concocting this elaborate story that was, you know, try to be fantastical about it and like include some elements of like surprise and wonder. And like, I was becoming like a really good storyteller to a degree, (laughs) but it was all, it was all lies. And it was, um, again, I'm, I'm not proud of it. I'm honest now in the sense that I'm honest about my, my lying. Um, but like I, uh, yeah, it, 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 you become, so deluded and delusional that you begin to believe your own lies. So that mm-hmm. when people call you out on it, it's kind of like, well, wait a second. No, that actually happened. And you, you've, you've processed it so much that it's actually become real. You, you may even experience some of the trauma of some of those stories that you've, you, you make up. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah. I, I've, I've never experienced the trauma of the lies I've made up before, but I know I, I have uh, family members who have said like, I've just thought about this horrible event potentially happening to me enough like a rape that now I've I'm like I'm experiencing you have PTSD some, yep. of having experienced it because I've thought about it so much, you know. Isn't that a great illustration of how powerful our mind is? Yeah, yeah. And it can be powerful in a negative way or it can be powerful in a positive way, but mm-hmm. we've talked on the show a lot about the pattern thoughts, feelings, behaviors, how we think about things influences and, and determines how we feel and what we do. And so if you are deep 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 into this fantasy world of lies, and and creating these these elaborate stories in order to protect your ability to to abuse alcohol or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can see how you emotionally can't avoid being affected by your own mental process of this story. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like what you said too. Where you, if you're thinking about it enough, it doesn't. You said it, your the feelings become real. I forgot how you said it, but like what I wanted to add was it becomes a reality. Mm-hmm. In your mind, yeah. your lies it becomes are your reality, real, you yeah. know, and it's it's very. Um, when I was doing outpatient, there were some things that were just so deeply ingrained that I I honestly thought I was telling the truth when I when I'd be saying those things, <laughs> yep. but then like my therapist, she just slapped me around enough until it finally came out as what reality actually was, and um, what a burden to be free from. Oh, 100%. because the 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 the, the, the it, I. When I got out of rehab, I was so excited. I was telling everyone that I was a recovering addict. My mom actually called me once. She's like, you should probably not be telling everyone that you were struggling with alcohol because, you know, there's a stigma that's associated with it. And sure. I would tell my employee, employers before I would, you know, or at a, at a job interview, yeah, I got rehab. Oh, but Casey's it was just done because that. I had I this. That. But the thing is, is, you know, too, you just have this enormous burden lifted off. I drank. I spent hours alone every single day drinking. And now that was gone. And I didn't have to hide that from anyone. And I can just dance around in the street. Feel, yeah, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And just like have all those lies it's lifted joyful. up and just be like, yeah, I was yeah. I was stoked. I Before was so we get stoked. you dancing around and celebrating your recovery, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. how do you get into recovery? Um, well, so that girl dumped me. Um, we were living together at the time. So I also lost my housing. I also lost my uh, the vehicle I was 
and and shortly before she dumped me, I uh, I lost my job. So like in the a matter of one day, uh, oh. I lost what some people might consider everything. I had a, a an acoustic guitar strapped to my back, and I'm wandering around, and that's supposed to be rock bottom. Nope, I can keep on digging. So I digged for a, a lot longer. I moved in with my uh, friend, and then I moved in with my sister, and then um, while I was living with her, I got uh, suicidal. And, um, yeah, what we, we spoke about this before the, uh, the podcast and there's a long story, which I'll give to you, uh, of how I got into recovery. And then the short story and the short story is just one word. It's humility. I finally got humble enough to ask for help. And the process of getting there was, uh, once I'd lost everything and I'd moved in with my sister, I was living in, in, in the garage. It was the winter. It was freezing cold. Um, I had a really crummy job and, uh, but thankfully the job was, uh, mindless. I was working in a, uh, uh, a fishing rod manufacturing facility. And, uh, so I could put on headphones and I started listening to, uh, self-help because I wanted to run my own program as they say in recovery. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was like, so I listened to a bunch of books about quitting alcoholism. I listened to a lot of Tony Robbins, of course, and like, uh, other self-help people and like it just none of it was working i started listening to a a podcast called the recovery elevator um and that podcast changed my life and that's also why i'm so thankful that you guys do what you do you may not realize it and the guy that runs uh uh the recovery elevator podcast doesn't know it but he saved my life and what you guys are doing is saving lives and you just don't realize it because not everyone's going to come up and have the opportunity to thank you so i want to call out the recovery elevator i see you bro I'll reach out to you soon (laughs) and let you know. But what he told a story on his podcast about um, his recovery process. And he called his dad to see if his dad would put him into a rehab facility. And um, when he told the story, his dad didn't answer, but he knew that when he called, tried to call his dad, that he was ready to do the right step. So he put himself into recovery facility and stuff. And I, I heard that story and it touched me in such a way that like, I, I got trashed and I called my dad. He picked up though. And um, I just told him, I just told him, look, I, I'm an alcoholic. It's like, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> it, it kind of put all the pieces together. Cause I, I think I managed to hide it from them. Not perfectly, but they probably didn't under, they they, I know something. they didn't know the depths of it. Yeah. So I called him and I said, look, put me in a rehab facility. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever you tell me. I'm not going to, you know, fight. Cause as I mentioned before, you know, I, I have my own strong personality. I want to do what I want to do. I want to, you know, I don't, I want to be told what to do or controlled or anything like that. But I had gotten to the point where I was humble enough to be like, I will do whatever I'm told. Send me wherever I need to go. I will follow whatever program I'm told to follow. I am tired of this. Um, I can't do it anymore. And it was a few days before a suicide, a few, uh, days after a suicide attempt actually. And, um, my dad was like, yeah, I'm on it. He called up, um, uh, my cousin who, uh, is Cameron Jensen. Uh, he's married to Annie Jordanson of, uh, Annie's house. And, um, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so my dad was able to contact, uh, I forget. Ty Hansen. Ty, or it wasn't Ty Hansen first. Actually, it was, uh, um, uh, Annie's dad. Um, okay. Yeah. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, but, uh, yeah. And he, he, and my dad talked and they got me into steps, uh, steps recovery center in, uh, Payson. And, um, yeah, that was the beginning. I did 90 days in there. I got a, I got a, uh, before I went in, I found online the FAA's, uh, 10 steps for a successful recovery. Mm. Um, and I saw that and I was like, I'm going to do everything that's on this list. And one of them was 90 days in a, in a inpatient, 90 days outpatient, a year of drug testing. And they had like just these 10 steps and I followed every single one of them on there. Um, and yeah. And, and how long ago was that, that you went in January 1st, 2017. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. New Year's day. Yeah, my uh, my lovely sister um, hopped on a plane with me and took me out here, 
and I stayed out here since. Because I was coming from, uh, she was living in uh, Washington at that time, so. So you get sober, you do the 10 steps the FFA, FAA recommends. Yeah. Um, FFA probably approves of it, too. I yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's the Federal Flight, uh, Aviation Administration. Uh, yeah, I was thinking yeah. of Future Farmers of America. Sure. Uh, for Morgan. You, know. <laughs> you get sober, and how does that lead you to being a street performer? Most people would think, or I would I, I think at least, is that uh, street performers probably not that conducive to a sober lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. I can... I mean, if you've, ever, if you've ever been to Vegas yeah. and walked on yeah. Fremont Street <laughs> yeah. and seen the performers, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think a lot of sobriety is going on there. No, 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 there's not. I've been down to, to Las Vegas, and yeah, it's, uh, it's a party. Um, How do you become the, the road drummer? So when I got out of rehab, um, so I, I guess it starts a little bit further back, so I'll give a little bit of preliminary. I saw Bucket Drummer's in Portland, Oregon, 2003, May 5th, was the first time I saw someone performing on a bucket um, in Portland. And we drove by them, and I was just fascinated. I thought it was the coolest thing. I, at that time, I was running the record label and stuff, and I was like, oh, that's so cool. I, I, you know. Um, and several years later, um, while I was still in my addiction and my life has fallen apart, you know, relationships about to end, I uh, stole the a construction bucket <laughs> while wasted from a construction site and found some, uh, some sticks that were on the site to just like, you know, branches and started going at it. And that was my first time really trying it. Mm. And then I didn't touch it for a long time. Um, when I got out of rehab, uh, I was like, I've always wanted to learn to play the buckets mm -hmm. right now is a perfect time. Why not now? Why now? Well, why right, not right. now? You know, it's like now? I've been waiting yeah. all this all this time. I'm in my 30s now, and I'm just getting out sober and stuff like that. Let's do it right now. But I was also too embarrassed to perform um, or play on the buckets in public or anything like that just because I, I had no experience. And I've, I've sat at a real drum set maybe four or five times. Um, so that wasn't your, your main instrument growing up? Uh, piano was my main piano. instrument, okay. yeah. And then uh, I played a little bit of clarinet and saxophone. Um, and... Uh, so what I did is I strapped the bucket to the front of my bicycle onto the handlebars. Um, and I learned to ride my bike without using my hands, but to <laughs> drum on the so bucket. riding around the, drumming on, on riding your Riding around drumming, yeah. Because then that allowed me to like practice as I was going back and forth to inpatient, actually. Or not inpatient, uh, outpatient. Outpatient, IOP. Because um, when I got out of rehab, I had nothing. I had like a backpack. You just destroyed every kid's excuse. I don't have time to practice my instrument. Uh, there's there's <laughs> always ways to do it. You're yeah, drumming yeah. as you're riding to, to IOP. Yeah. And I did that for like two years, actually. I got a real job <laughs> working at a, a place called Server Plus, um, uh, making instructional design stuff. And like, uh, but as I would go back and forth to work, I, you know, when I got out of rehab, I had nothing. So I didn't have a car or anything like that. And I just rode my bike and practiced playing the drums. And then um, I lost my job at, uh, at Server Plus. Um, and I just kept playing the buckets. One day I sat down outside uh, out of frustration. Actually, a person had, uh, a friend of mine from rehab had overdosed and died. And I was really, really frustrated. I was still dirt poor. And my bike tire was flat. So I just sat down next to my van and started performing on the ground for the first time, actually. And people started approaching me while I was sitting out in the parking lot doing that, watching me and like, you know, oh, that's really cool. And they started trying to pay me money. And I was just like, ah, I still had that punk rock ethos of like, oh, you can't give me yeah. money for making art. That's selling out, blah, blah, blah and stuff like that. So, yeah. um, but what was amazing when I first did it and people just started approaching me as they started dancing and that, uh. That moves me. When people um, dance, to me, that's an that's a physical expression of of joy, and um, and now that's my goal. Every time I go out and I play, is to is to get people to dance. So I I uh, played a couple of times. I was still looking for a, a real job though, um, and then the pandemic hit, 
And uh, so I couldn't find a real job, even if I wanted to. (laughs) Nobody was hiring. Yeah, yeah. No one was hiring or anything like that. So it was like, well... I guess I've got these buckets. I'll just keep on playing. So I'd set up on the side of roads and stuff like that and uh, just bucket drum. And what was really fun about it, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, is you guys remember everyone was on super high stress alert. You sure. couldn't get close to people that you loved even. Like it was a, it was an incredibly difficult time for a lot of people. And what was great about going out and performing on the side of the road is like I could provide people a concert. Yeah. And they would stop and they'd watch me just going at it and having a blast for like 30 seconds and then go and then go through the red light. And like I would get people writing to me like you've made my day, you you know, thank you for spreading joy and smiles. And like people were just responding to it so positively in the very beginning because they were all needing it, needing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. They, they needed some. And I, and I know you, you've seen me perform before. I have, I'm, yeah. I'm more than once. I'm giving tons and tons of energy. I'm grinning from ear to ear. I'm <laughs> engaging the audience. You I'm can't trying ignore to talk you when, when you walk by. But what you're saying is so true. It's not just that you're out there drumming. And it's not that you're drumming. I mean, it's amazing. that, that That's a side note. But it's your energy that you have in the studio today. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's very infectious. Oh, thank you. And so you're out there, and how does this become a, a job for you? I mean, how do so? I guess people want to start paying you. Yeah, that was actually the funny thing. Uh, like in the beginning, I didn't have any tip buckets out or anything like that. And when people would try to pay me, I actually saw it as a nuisance. It was because <laughs> yeah. I, I, when I saw street performers, I never thought of them as making any money. I just yeah. assumed that they didn't make any money. I would tip street performers and stuff, but like I assumed that like oh, a couple of bucks. Right? Yeah, yeah, it wasn't going to actually go anywhere or anything like that. Um, but. For me, what I realized, and you know this as working with other musicians and stuff like that, is musicians are lazy. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're incredibly, incredibly lazy. And um, I am not. So I go out and perform every single day for hours at a time, drumming, which is like running in place. Like, And so it's, it's hard, heavy, heavy work. But that's, yeah. you know, when people think of like, uh, yeah – most street performers probably make nothing unless they're in Las Vegas and they've got like a bunch of people with money walking by them. But like most of the musicians that I know who do street performances, they, A, they want to play their own music, which no one wants to hear. I'm sorry. That <laughs> sucks. I had to hear it too, but no one wants to hear your own original music. Yeah. Um, so play songs that, you know, people are familiar with and then they're more likely to tip you. Right. Um, most musicians just, they're not out there to entertain people. They're out there to express themselves, which is fine. If you want to make art to express yourself, don't expect anyone to pay you unless you make something that is really, really unique. Yeah. Um, when I go out, I go out to entertain people. That is my goal. I want to see people smile and dance. It's li- I literally have a mission statement written on the ceiling of my van. So every time when I wake up and I, I see it, you know, make them smile, make them dance. That's the goal. So I think that that's what distinguishes me from other street performers who aren't able to make a living doing it is, A, I work every single day. I work hard yeah. as a drummer and B I, uh, I focus on what the audience wants rather than what I want to do as an artist. And it's, it was kind of a unique transition to make too. Cause as an artist, you always want to express yourself. That's kind of why I got into it, mm-hmm. but I've actually learned to find more joy in bringing joy to others. And when I do write music, cause I still write music and stuff like that. I try to write it in a, a a fashion that is meant to connect with someone else rather than saying what I feel or what mm-hmm. I need or how I, how I'm doing or anything like that. I want to make you happy or I want to touch you in a specific way. It's. And I guess that'd be the third thing is it's, it, there's a lack of, there's uh less selfishness in what I do. Most musicians are incredibly selfish. <laughs> no, I'm just, you can too. Yeah, yeah. You, I'm speaking to the DJ. You know, like we're we're not the best people. <laughs> we're late. We're never like I, I noticed that you t- had me come here 45 minutes early, and I came 30 minutes before the 45. Yeah. yeah. But most musicians, you know, I'm sure they would have arrived at 11:30 or whatever. Yeah, like but doctors. yeah, like musicians, just they just like don't. Doctors. <laughs> I think that's what really has allowed me though to do it full time. Though is I just. I'm relentless. Yeah. I, I love the fact that and your energy is amazing, but I do want to take a moment to figure out what worked well in your recovery. What really sunk in? Is it, is mm-hmm. it meditation? Is it 12 step? Uh, I mean, what made you think that you could do this? Because normally there's something that you goes like, okay, I got this. Yeah, yeah. Was there something that really stands still that helps you stay sober? I am not a victim. 
is probably the biggest realization. There's a couple of them. Like I said, humility was a big thing, realizing that, learning how to get outside my comfort zone. But really the biggest thing was just realizing I'm not a victim. Um, in my addiction, I was convinced that, um, you know, not that everyone was out to get me, but everyone was not interested in me, um, doing well or that they would cut. Now, I guess it was out to get me. Now that I think about it, like it's, it's definitely the victimhood mentality is so powerful and so present. It's, and it's one of those things where like, so we've all been victims. Yeah. We've all, been know, we've all had, pe- we've all had people steal from us, lie to us, cheat, all those different things. Sure. But the difference between being victimized and being a victim is a victim has a mentality. So I would like I've been victimized and then I would take that and I would hold on to that victimhood and just continue to allow that to to modify my behavior in different things. So like a really simple example would be like, oh, I asked a girl out, you know, and she said no. And oh, poor, sad me. No girl's ever going to like me. I'm never going to ask anyone out ever again. So I become this victim of rejection. You know, and then I begin to live inside that and just can just just which is a really attractive quality (laughs) sarcasm because like like (laughs) like, girls love that girls love that so you create that self fulfilling prophecy like and I think that what you're describing is very true that you know back not to beat a dead horse but thoughts feelings behaviors right Mm -hmm. so how you think about things influences how you feel and what you do it becomes who you are, it becomes your reality. And so you're absolutely right that there's a huge difference between being victimized and having a victim mentality. It becomes who you are and other people sense it and they do start to treat you that way. Yeah. Yeah. And so like coming out of that mentality of victimhood, um, just before I checked into rehab, I wrote a statement that I'll always remember. And it was, uh, cause I was like journaling before I went in, um, you are responsible for everything that happens to you. Responsibility is not the same as blame. Right. But responsibility dictates who is in charge of what happens next. So, yes, I've been victimized. But that is my responsibility to deal with that. Does that make sense? Like just oh, because absolutely. just because something happens to me, that yes. does, I can still blame someone else for that, but it is up to me yeah. to behave a certain way at like if someone calls me a name, I still have the choice of you know, addressing so, them or ignoring them. Let you know? me let me take a wild guess here. Ooh. When you were in that victim mindset, he called it victimhood. Victimhood. Oh, either, either way, I, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. When you were in that mindset, when you when that was kind of how you were living life, you were probably consumed with this idea of fairness. Things yeah. aren't fair. This isn't fair. I this you know things should happen better. Once you broke out of that. It was responsibility. We're not yeah. we're not hung up on fair anymore. We're just dealing with well, it's my responsibility. I have to take care of this. But it's it's interesting that when we get hung up on what's fair, it, it's easy to sink into that victimhood. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I never heard of it put that way too. That it, I guess it was about fairness. And what's greatly ironic about that though too is like you know, just because uh, I was upset about things not being fair doesn't mean that I didn't think I was above the system or that I could do things that were unfair. You know what I'm saying? Like, so even though I was being victimized or in that victimhood mindset, I would still victimize other people through my lies and stuff like Your ego, right? Yeah. Yeah. Through the ego and stuff. So it was the great irony is, is that you are upset that everyone's not behaving a certain way, but you're behaving differently than they are. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I would just—it was just the the fairness. I'd never heard it put that way. That's really that's the, really the narcissism man. of what you're describing. Is, yeah, it, it <laughs> trips exactly us what up, it is. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That yeah. was another thing that I had to realize too. I is love that Scott I was a narcissist. because you can you can say something that hurts and he laughs at it. You're like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. Oh yeah, well that's the thing, dude. Like it's not. I I'm incredibly durable now. That's what has made uh, my recovery. And like, there's 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 all sorts of things that happen to you in your life that will discourage you or like, you know, prevent you from uh, chasing your dreams, but you just got to laugh at it. You really have to, because life isn't fair. You're not a victim and it's your responsibility to make your dreams come true. Ah, well said. I love it. Let me take one other observation. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. And and you tell me if you think I'm okay with being told I'm wrong, but it seems to me like, there's a direct correlation between giving up on your artist self 
and re-embracing your artist self. Yeah. And it seems to me like alcoholism happened in between those two points in your life. Would you say that's true? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and so everybody's, we said, you know, Casey said this a thousand times, everybody's recovery it looks different. It sounds to me like one key element of your recovery has been re-embracing the artist that you are because you not only lit up but got emotional when you told the story about making other people dance. Yeah. And that harkens back to your story of dancing to Michael Jackson as a little kid. Yeah. Right. And so those connections, that was such a, I could tell you mentioned Michael Jack. We've only been talking for an hour and you've mentioned dancing as Michael Jackson twice (laughs) in that hour. It's a clear memory. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. A clear and powerful memory. And then you got emotional that first time that somebody stopped and was really connecting and enjoying that music with you and dancing themselves. And so in between those two things, that's where your story went off the rails. That's when the alcoholism happened. And it's interesting in psychology, we often talk about the power of art and going way back to someone like Carl Jung, the psychoanalyst who talked about an artist, whether it's a visual art, a story, music, you put yourself into that. And when somebody else comes along and they connect with that art you created, you're connecting with them, even if it's across time and space. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the art that we consume, we're never going to meet that artist, right? Yeah. I, you know, Bono and I, I, I mean, I keep writing him letters, but he still doesn't want to <laughs> hang out. You know, like, but when you, when, you, when you connect with art, you connect with the artist. It's a very personal thing, even if it's across time and space, even if you never physically are around that person. And I can tell that you, as an artist, by re-embracing that ability to connect with people. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm guessing that's a huge part of your ongoing recovery. Definitely. Yeah. Um, We've said on the podcast before, the opposite of addiction isn't abstinence, it's connection. And it sounds like your art gives you a way to connect with others that gives you a community. You said before, uh, and maybe this was on or off the podcast, but literally you'll have 20,000 people walk past you drumming. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean, and yeah. they don't know who you are, and you don't know who they are. But, but I see him smile. I but, see him. I, I, but you're well, connected to him. Yeah. I can tell you, uh, the last time that I went out, that sometimes I go out the other entrance, but the last time I went out the main entrance, and I was with uh, my girlfriend Ashley, and as we were walking by, and we stopped and watched you for a, a little bit, and then we kept going, and her comment was, "Man, he seems like he's having fun." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. I am. I. I I uh, I love what I do. I, it gives me a sense of purpose. You were talking about, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection. I think that that's true, but I also think that for me it was a, more about purpose. Mm-hmm. It was more about having a a purpose to go out and to serve others. In my addiction, I was woefully selfish. Everything I was, do was doing was about me. And what was ironic is when I was just sitting there serving myself, whether it be through drinking or, you know, a variety of other things like um, I wasn't happy and that, but now I go out and I don't do much for myself. I mean, I feed myself, but like my entire existence is wrapped around trying to entertain people and making them smile. That is my purpose. So I've modified my entire life. I live out of my van so that I can travel around and set up at different places and like, you know, not have to worry about finding a hotel or anything like that. And like, I can just travel around, set up, make people smile and leave. And that gives me so much sense of purpose. I've had so many people write to me or, and I've inspired so many kids to play the drums. I feel bad for all the parents that I've done that to, (laughs) 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 but like it, it, you know, yeah, it gives me purpose and it allows me to connect with people for sure. Um, I I think that, uh, the connection that you're referring to though, like it, it, there's, it's deeper, you know? Oh Yeah. No, it is. You know, um, then like a connection I make with someone who I'm performing for who may dance or smile at me um, versus a connection with someone like what we're having right now, which is much deeper, much more substantive. We have uh, similar experiences and stuff like that that we're sharing back and forth with that. And we are connecting on a very deep and emotional level. And that is the opposite of addiction. And I'm so glad you stopped by and let us uh, have this connection. I think you may be the most well-spoken drummer. (laughs) <laughs> I've ever met. I mean, he describes this. You've described your experience and your thoughts 
so clearly. I hope people are really taking note of what you said today. Oh, and we will you. put videos of him drumming up on our Facebook and yeah. Instagram and social and ways to get a hold of him because I think your drumming is really just going to take you to the next level, and I can't wait to see what happens. Oh, thank you so much, Casey. I really appreciate it. Hey, you've been listening to Project Recovery, and in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast, Casey. Give me a drum beat, Scott. <laughs> I like to keep it simple. You know? I, I, know, I, got it, I, I don't want to confuse anyone. Is that a paradiddle? <laughs> no, I think that was just five hand slaps. There you go. He's got the paradiddle. Oh, I got yeah, it. Yeah, got to yeah. get you guys together. <laughs> of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.